Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, Stepping into the Unknown, what we learned from 2020 and what it might mean for health and safety in 2021, sponsored by Cority. This is Barry Botino. I'm an associate editor at Safety and Health Magazine, and I'll be your moderator for today's presentation. First, we'd like to thank all of you for joining us, and on behalf of the National Safety Council, whose employees are working away from the office currently, we hope that you're all remaining safe and healthy during this time. We'll start the presentation in a couple minutes, but first there are some housekeeping items to share with you today. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speaker and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speaker. To ask a question, just click on the Q&A button, which is located at the bottom of your screen, type in your question, and press the send button. Please feel free to ask your question at any time at all during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible today, uh, but we might not get to everyone. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speaker. After this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live events. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com events, or you'll also receive a link in our post-event email. With that, let's introduce our speaker today. With us is Sean Baldry, the Product Marketing Manager at Cority. In his role at Cority, Sean supports the company's health and safety solutions. He has worked for nearly 20 years in occupational health and safety with leading global corporations that serve the construction, mining, automotive, and manufacturing sectors. In addition, Sean is also a Canadian registered safety professional. Again, we thank you all for tuning in to this presentation today. And Sean, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Well, thanks a lot, Barry, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, certainly glad you could make it. So I guess to start off, um, I'll tell a little bit of a story. A few weeks ago, a colleague of mine asked me if an interesting question. She, she said, if you could select a single image that would best encapsulate 2020 this past year, what would that image be? And, and we were doing it in, in a rather joking fashion. So, you know, I, I took up the challenge and I, I scoured the internet uh, for a number of hours and I came up with an image that I think best encapsulates 2020. And I, I'd just like to share it with you right now. So hopefully uh, you find uh, that a little bit amusing, but uh, the reason I bring it up is, is let's be honest, you know, the, the past year has been pretty awful. And I always say like, you know, once in a in hundred years kind of awful, but I think to simply write off the year entirely as isn't a really effective strategy either since despite, you know, the challenges that we faced, it has, the past year has offered us a number of key lessons that we can learn from. And I think it will, and it has already singled, uh, signaled a number of challenges and, and new trends that are emerging that health and safety professionals and business leaders need to be aware of. Uh, so we can prepare um, for these trends to, to be able to manage risk uh, more effectively and, and build better safety cultures moving forward. And, and that's essentially what I'd like to talk about today. So in that respect, I thought we could break down this conversation into three parts. 
In part one, I'd like to take a quick glance back at 2020, uh, really to discuss what were the notable events that happened in health and safety, and, and if possible, try to tease out some of the key learnings from those events. Uh, we'll transition into to the second part where we'll look uh, a little bit further down the road. And, and uh, what I'll do is I'll offer some of my thoughts as to what we can expect in 2021 and perhaps some of the ways organizations should be preparing for these, these new trends and, and opportunities as they emerge. And then finally, in part three, I, I thought we could briefly explore how technology might help us address some of these new challenges and trends and really set our organizations on a more solid footing uh, for success in the years ahead. So really, that's that's the roadmap for today. And we, Obviously, without further ado, let's let's dive in. So, you know, I think it's fair to say that with all the turmoil that's really uh, characterized the past year, it's it's easy for us to forget some of the major events that occurred. And and when I was putting together this presentation, I was trying to to rack my memory a little bit on on all the things that have happened and and potentially what the effect their effect had. On, on occupational health and safety generally. So I, I created a short list. It's certainly not uh, exhaustive in, in any stretch of the imagination, but I thought it would really kind of uh, solidify for us all that went on this year and, and potentially what that means going forward. So uh, if we start on the left-hand side of the screen on, in early January of this year, uh, you might remember that Australia was, was uh, fighting uh, a number of, of pretty extensive brush fires, um, reaching their peak uh, mid-month and eventually destroying about 50 million acres of land and, and contributing to uh, between 500 and 1,000 deaths. A little bit later in the month, we saw the, the United Kingdom officially declare uh, its departure from the, the EU. Uh, and that transition period is scheduled to, to end uh, at the end of this month. And then, as we all know, on March 11th, the, the, the key event of the year occurred. The WHO officially declares COVID-19 a global pandemic. And life, as we all know, it changes overnight. Uh, a few days after that, on March 16th, the, the first cities and states around the U.S. in particular began to, to issue their lockdown orders. And, and again, the, the, the entire world was going through uh, some, of, some of the challenges that are associated with that. Uh, in early May, we saw the CDC announce its first return to work guidelines for businesses, and, and we saw different iterations of this throughout the year. A uh, little time passed. You might recall that there was a, a pretty significant uh, ammonium-based fertilizer explosion in the port of Beirut in Lebanon uh, that killed uh, 200 people, but certainly raised and elevated um, uh, the topic of, of process safety management once again. August 16th, again, we saw intense thunderstorms spark some massive wildfires in California. Uh, and then again, a little bit of time passed, as we all know, uh, quintessential uh, event of the year, the US presidential election occurred. And then uh, as of November 20th, uh, Pfizer announced it was seeking FDA approval for its COVID-19 vaccine with Moderna shortly thereafter. Uh, and, and this kind of arrives at where we are today. So, you know, with so many events and developments occurring throughout the year, it's, it's certainly useful, I think, to take a look back at, at just some of these events to, to hopefully understand what they, what they mean, what, what we learn from them, and maybe how those learnings may influence the way that we manage safety going forward. So I think, you know, it's fair to say that without question, the defining event of 2020 was COVID-19. Um, but but let's let's again take a step back and, and really try to figure out what we've learned. So I think firstly, we've learned to appreciate the severity and scale of the virus, both from a human and an, and an economic perspective. I was checking uh, John Hopkins uh, website uh, this afternoon. Uh, I think the, the current tally right now is about 73 million cases of COVID-19 worldwide with the US accounting for about one in five confirmed infections. 
and uh, the death toll ticking up above 300,000 uh, deaths this year. Um, and, and certainly from an economic perspective, we saw the pandemic ravage, you know, the global economy, you know, in the US, uh, specifically, GDP fell about 10% in the second quarter of the year, you know, relative to, to the same period last year. And though unemployment has begun to improve, I think it was around 6.7% uh, based on the last um, Department of Labor report, those stats, I don't think necessarily tell a full story of the economic impact. I, I was reading a, a survey recently uh, that revealed that 160,000 uh, small businesses were shuttered in the pandemic and about 60 to 70% of those businesses aren't planning to reopen. So it's having a, a massive uh, impact on the economy as we all know. I think secondly, the virus has reinforced um, pretty clearly the importance of emergency planning and business continuity. And certainly that's been uh, one of the key driving topics of the year. Um, and COVID-19 has really shattered this illusion that, that existed in many organizations uh, that they believe that they were adequately prepared for emergencies and, and really exposed flaws in business continuity planning, um, including how adaptable uh, we believed our workplaces actually were to enable uh, operations to continue uh, when a huge portion of the workforce is suddenly unavailable, like in, in a pandemic disease uh, type of, of circumstance. So, you know, this has created that renewed focus on organizational resilience and risk management, and that's likely going to remain with us for some time. And finally, and, and I've said this before, and, and some people might might feel it's, it's a little odd, but I'd argue that the crisis ha has also had some positive effects, most notably in that it's triggered what I will call a safety renaissance of sorts. And the reason I say that is I can't think of a time where managing safety and business viability have been so clearly connected. You know, I've, I've often said that it's literally the ability to keep your people safe that will ultimately determine whether a business survives or not in this period of time. So I, I think the key learning is that this current environment has really created a once in a lifetime opportunity for health and safety professionals to leverage this renewed focus on safety to secure the investments that are needed um, for, for organizations to, to be able to achieve their safety goals in the future. So the question is really, how do we secure that buy-in now for those investments when, when businesses are, you know, a lot of businesses are really focused on short-term survival. So that, that's a point that, that we'll return to later in the presentation, but certainly a key point that we learned throughout the year. I think the, the second key story for 2020 from a health and safety perspective uh, for me would be the continuation of, of the Trump administration's deregulatory agenda. And you know this, this is a pretty broad topic, so I thought it would be valuable to take maybe a few minutes just to drill down on uh, four of, of what I would consider to be the, the most noteworthy developments. So certainly topping the list, um, inspections, it was reported recently uh, that the number of OSHA inspectors dropped from about 875 last year to uh, about 761 uh, in 2020, which incidentally is the lowest level uh, in, in OSHA's history. And similarly, there's been some information reported that the total number of OSHA inspections in the last three years um, have been lower than a similar period with the prior administration, even while the workforce grew by about 16% in that period. And, and for some perspective on this, um, OSHA employed roughly 1,500 inspectors in 1980, who covered 3.5 million fewer workplaces. So uh, if you can kind of think about it, without a doubt, you know, this decrease in, in OSHA's inspection capacity is a concern of sorts, uh, especially considering that even if hiring resumes um, 
you know, in the new year, it's estimated to take about 18 months to get a new inspector in the field. So it really remains a question whether this lack of enforcement, uh, the, these lack of enforcement resources will contribute to higher uh, injury and illness rates in the near term, especially in, in those sectors uh, where we see um, higher incident and, and fatality rates. So we'll, we'll have to wait to see what that looks like. I think the, the second uh, key development on, uh, on a, a regulatory perspective uh, concerns injury reporting and record keeping. So certainly, uh, you know, the other Obama era rule that was reversed quickly into to Trump's first term um, concerned the electronic reporting rule, as we all know. Um, and when Trump's OSHA reversed the rule, it stated that it would only collect the, the 300A logs and, and then post this information for public review. But when businesses began to argue that, you know, some of this information, they claim that the information contained confidential uh, employee data, you know, OSHA refused to release the data. And that led to, to a number of lawsuits. Most notably, uh, there was one uh, that was issued by an advocacy group called Public Citizen. So one of the things that we learned this year, this past July, uh, a court sided with, with that advocacy group, stating that OSHA had breached the, the rule and ordered it to release the data. Now, that being said, I've yet to see where OSHA has published that data. And if, if you do know, please let me know. Um, but I think yeah, it's probably, if, if it hasn't been published, we, we we're not really holding out hope that we'll get it before January 20th, but it's gonna be interesting to see how these, these injury reporting rules manifest themselves in the new year. I think the third um, interesting point on a, on a regulatory perspective concerned Executive Order 13924. So if you're unaware of what this executive order is, uh, back in May, President Trump issued an executive order that required all federal agencies to identify regulatory standards that would or potentially would inhibit economic recovery after COVID-19 and to consider issuing rules that would either temporarily or permanently rescind, modify, or waive those rules and, and regulations. And, and though, though nothing I've seen is, is really indicated that, um, you know, that that's resulted in a lot of health and safety protection, a rollback of, of health and safety protections, certainly has raised the alarm of a lot of workplace safety experts that's, that are a little bit concerned about the broad scope of the executive order, you know, and, and certainly worried that it will provide a context for um, a rollback of some of these protections under the guise of, of economic recovery, you know, particularly in, in the current lame-deck session. So, you know, again, I haven't seen any any particular midnight rulemaking in in this perspective, but you know, we'll we'll have to wait over the next 36 days or so to see if if anything um, comes in under the wire. And then finally, I think one of the things that that's caught a lot of attention recently is um, Department of Labor's uh, decision to stop its its name and shame policy. So, in September of this year, uh, DOL issued a memo to which essentially rescinded. Uh, or restricted the the ability of of OSHA, MSHA, and any of the enforcement agencies to issue press releases um, that announced citations levied against employers for workplace safety violations. And and if you recall, this name and shame policy was used um, heavily by by past administrations as a general deterrent, um, really to encourage businesses to uh, voluntarily improve their compliance by learning of the penalties of of other employers in either their their same industry sector or, or relative geography, I guess you could say. And in announcing the change, you know, DOL's rationale was that the press releases unfairly characterized employers because, but before this, the citations were fully adjudicated in court, um, 
understanding that that those those companies could face reputational damage despite the fact that the the citations may be eventually rescinded so you know they, there's a, a number of different perspectives on on this this uh, development it shouldn't come as a uh, as a surprise, though, that a lot of workplace safety advocates are voicing concern about this, um, principally because they're arguing that the name and shame policy is pretty effective as a general deterrent. There was a, a study from Duke recently that said that a single press release uh, had the equivalent effect of about 200 additional regulatory inspections. So again, it, it we're going to have to wait and see um, what happens with this policy going forward, whether it, it'll be continuation with the, with the next administration, or whether we'll see um, uh, the name and shame policy kind of flip back uh, at a later time. And finally, I, I think the last key health and safety story that I'll focus on for 2020 concerned the election, but not particularly the, the, the presidential race, but uh, as, it, as it reflects a couple of ballot initiatives in, in a couple of, uh, or a handful of states. So if you didn't hear on, on November 3rd, five states voted to either legalize or decriminalize marijuana, uh, including Arizona, Montana, South Dakota, New Jersey, and Mississippi, uh, bringing the total number of states that have either legalized or decriminalized marijuana to about 35 by my count. And this invariably raises questions about, you know, what effect these laws are going to have on workplace safety. Um, and this result, incidentally, comes on the heels of, of a National Institute of Drug Abuse study that found that impaired workers were involved in 55% more workplace accidents than, than their unimpaired peers. And uh, interestingly, Quest Labs, which is the largest testing company in the U.S., you might have heard their name uh, with, uh, with their involvement in the COVID um, testing, uh, they recently stated that the rate of workforce drug positivities reached a 16-year high uh, as of last year. So, you know, certainly we're, we're seeing increased rates of, of uh, drug positivity uh, in the workplace, and, and we're seeing uh, more decriminalization and legalization of marijuana. There's some concern that that's being raised there. But, but incidentally, what does this mean for employers? I think it means two things. Firstly, businesses would be best advised to review and clearly communicate their their drug and alcohol policies to their employees including the rules surrounding workforce impairment you know employees need to know that like alcohol they just because something is legal doesn't mean it gives them an excuse to be impaired at work and you know it's important to note that drug testing is still permitted but you know employers would be would be best advised to to make sure that the rules surrounding when testing is appropriate is is clearly defined and, and communicated and then, um, you know, certainly businesses would be best advised to consider expanding the availability of health services for those with substance abuse or, or mental health issues if they have the capability of doing so. Uh, I think one of, of, of probably the lasting effects that we've seen with COVID-19 is, is the growing concerns around mental health. And, and incidentally, CDC estimated a few years ago that about 8 million adults in the U.S., have, have a substance abuse disorder that's tied to a secondary mental health issue. So they, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, so certainly if, if your business is capable, expanding the availability of those services is, is really gonna have a positive effect. So now that we've reviewed some of those noteworthy um, issues, I, I, I think it's probably appropriate now that let's cast our gaze a little bit further down the road and talk about what we can expect uh, for health and safety in 2021 and, and, and really how organizations can prepare for this. But before we do so, I'm, I'm gonna flip the floor back over to, to Barry uh, so we can run a quick poll uh, just to get your impressions of what, uh, what you're thinking about going into 2021. Sounds good, Sean. Thank you. And uh, if we can pop up our poll here, uh, we're going to give everyone about 15 
seconds or so to answer the poll question. And uh, you should be seeing that on your screen now. The, the question is, what are you most concerned about with respect to health and safety as we head into 2021? And there are five potential answers there. We'll give everyone about 15 seconds here before we uh, flip over to the results. Okay, and Sean, it looks like um, we do have a couple, uh, obviously the, the topic on everyone's mind is, is ongoing COVID-19 management uh, and then secondary worker at risk behaviors on the job. Can, can you share your thoughts about, about uh, the results that we're seeing here? Yeah, you know, it, it, those results are, are entirely expected. I think, you know, there, there's a lot of, of positive news uh, in the media recently around uh, Pfizer's vaccine, and it, it's certainly encouraging, but I think everybody uh, realizes that with the logistical, um, the, the heavy lift on logistics that, that is going to come out of, out of that vaccine effort, um, there's going to be a lot of things uh, that, that businesses are going to have to manage up to the point where we have enough of the population uh, vaccinated that, that we can start to remove some of those protections. So ongoing COVID-19 management is, uh, is, is completely logical, you know, and, and expected. I think, you know, worker at-risk behavior, I, I would see this tying into it a little bit. You know, how do we make sure that uh, people are, are practicing those behaviors on the job that, that are conducive to, to safe work, you know, whether that's COVID-related or otherwise. So um, not entirely, uh, not entirely uh, unsurprising, I guess you could say. Okay, and with that, let's let's go forward. So I think everybody is waiting eagerly to see um, what course the, the incoming Biden administration is going to chart with workplace health and safety over the next four years. So I thought it, it would be uh, probably good to look and, and offer a few ideas of what that might look like. And, and certainly these were, were some that came off the top of my head uh, that there certainly could be others. But, you know, I think firstly, uh, when we look at agency leadership, um, I think we'll soon see President-elect Biden announce his picks for the Assistant Secretaries of OSHA and MSHA, which, you know, to be honest, is, is going to be a notable change, you know, considering that OSHA has been, quote, leaderless um, for, for at least the, the last, you know, few years. And, and certainly since, you know, uh, Trump's last nominee withdrew himself from nomination uh, at the midpoint of last year. And what's interesting is Bloomberg... Um, uh, has reported recently that uh, the AFL-CIO uh, leadership have proposed a couple of candidates for, for Biden for consideration. Those include uh, Jim Frederick, who is currently serving as the Assistant Director of Health and Safety for the United Steelworkers, and uh, the other name that was thrown out was Chris Kane, who is currently the Health and Safety Director for the North America Building Trades Union. Um, now, We'll have to see whether Biden decides to, to select either of these individuals or somebody else, but I think it's a fair bet uh, to suggest that um, whomever that candidate is uh, or, or are uh, will have some sort of relationship with organized labor, considering the, the support that unions had provided to the president-elect during the campaign. Um, for MSHA, again, I'm not hearing of, of, of any candidates um, in particular to date, um, but again, I, I think it's probably a good bet that we can anticipate um, that whoever the, the assistant secretary is going to be is not going to be somebody coming from the, the management levels of the mining company like the current incumbent. Um, and I think that's going to really signify uh, potentially um, some of the other moves in, and developments that are going to occur from uh, a regulatory perspective. And, and with that, I think this, this kind of ties well into to the second point. Um, 
You know, as mentioned earlier, Ocean MSHA's enforcement approach really dropped under the, the current administration. And I'm guessing that we can almost certainly expect the agencies to refer back to a more aggressive uh, approach to enforcement as we saw in, in Obama's terms. Um, Incidentally, on on his uh, on the campaign website during uh, during the race, the the Biden campaign wrote that it would substantially expand OSHA's enforcement efforts, increasing the number of inspectors and directing agencies to develop comprehensive strategies to to address dangerous hazards. So, you know, I, I think that translates into you know additional hiring of inspectors and and just a, a general increase in overall inspection activity, both generally, but uh, but obviously um, specifically with respect to COVID nineteen enforcement. Uh, that we can expect in the first um, two quarters of next year, certainly. You know, thirdly, um, there's a lot of talk about new regulations and rulemaking that, that could come in last year. I, I think probably most um, most prominent of, of which would be uh, protections or, or, or uh, regulations that would compel OSHA and MSHA to issue a COVID-19 emergency temporary standard, which um, I know that there's been a number of bills passed or, or introduced in uh, uh, in the Senate recently that uh, that have stalled, but I think, you know, President-elect Biden has been very clear that he supports an ETS. So I think we can expect OSHA and MSHA to release um, a standard um, very quickly into the first term. And, you know, that standard will likely require employers to, you know, do things like create site-specific control plans um, that are going to include hazard assessment, training, PPE requirements, and mandatory infection reporting. So uh, I would expect, you know, we're going to see a lot more rigidity around uh, what employers are going to have to do to uh, demonstrate that uh, that they're taking all reasonable steps to, to protect their, their people from COVID. Beyond COVID-19, I would expect some movement um, in areas like the electronic reporting rule, as we we had mentioned previously, I, I, I see it probably a good good chance that we're going to see a revert a revert back to the original rule that was as it was issued in 2016. Beyond the ETS, um, there's certainly been growing calls uh, for OSHA to issue a permanent infection infectious disease standard, uh, which I believe was in draft in Obama's last term. Um, so we'll see. We'll have to see where that goes. And then obviously there, there's been some talk about standards um, concerning workplace violence and heat stress that, that have been circulating, and, and we'll have to see where that goes. Beyond that, you know, there's a number of, of different things um, potentially on the docket. One of them being um, there's been an omnibus bill called the uh, Protecting America's Workers Act. Uh, that was first introduced 10 years ago. Uh, it's been introduced in every cycle, and that bill proposes a number of, of pretty sweeping reforms uh, across health and safety law, um, particularly around criminal penalties, whistleblower protections, um, rule changes around site controlling employers, things like that. But realistically, you know, there's little chance of that bill passing unless the Democrats assume control of the Senate. Um, following the, the runoff elections in Georgia next month. So we'll have to see where that goes. And then finally, advisory committees. Um, many might not recall, but in September of 2017, uh, President Trump issued an executive order which effectively disbanded the, the advisory committees that would um, uh, advise um, OSHA and MSHA on, on some of the, the important work and, and um, sector-specific hazards that are going on. Um, they haven't been operating over the last couple of years. I would anticipate that, that we're going to see those, those committees come back to uh, some form of operation uh, early in the new year. 
The second thing that, that I would argue uh, that we should probably look out for next year concerns uh, this integration between sustainability and safety. So, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that beyond COVID-19, climate was the other key story of 2020. You know, we, we had talked about this a little bit earlier that um, the year was marked by a couple of pretty severe climate events. You know, those included you know, Australian bushfires, the, the California wildfires. And um, I think Noah had mentioned that this year was the uh, the most active Atlantic hurricane season on record. So, you know, and I think we can anticipate a significantly different approach with the incoming administration with respect to climate that we've seen from the current White House. Um, you know, President-elect Biden has, has made mention that and, and campaigned very heavily on the need for action around climate change. And he's already announced his intention uh, to rejoin the, the Paris Climate Agreement uh, when he takes office. So th the reason I bring that up is because we continue to see safety and sustainability management become more intertwined in organizations um, as the years move on. You know, sustainability has become one of those critical levers for, for many global businesses um, to consider um, when when they're looking at um, securing sustainable investments or or just trying to attract talent, um, considering the the emphasis that younger workers are placing on sustainability and, and environmental and social equity, and um, ESG or or environmental, social, and, and governance scores are used as the principal measure to to measure sustainability, and they're placing increased emphasis now on corporations' social responsibility, including the impact of operations on on health and welfare of of their employees. So, you know, as, as economic recovery continues and, and organizations will continue to, you know, seek competitive advantage to either attract talent or, or investment, um, I think we're going to see a, a lot more organizations place more emphasis on their ESG scores. And, and in, in doing so, I think that, that we're going to see a lot more emphasis on health and safety within those scores. Um, I, I, I discovered recently uh, there was a Bank of, of America study that found that investments that had better ESG scores had outperformed lower sc uh, st uh, scoring stocks, excuse me, by about 5 to 10% in both European and U.S. markets in, in the past year. And uh, there was a recent survey by Marsha McLennan uh, that found that companies with higher ESG scores scored uh, were 25% better at attracting young talent. So certainly, you know, a lot of organizations are, are seeing the, the, the potential opportunities around um, sustainability and safety. And, and uh, I think we're going to see a lot more interest and activity uh, grow in the, in the next couple of years around how we include safety in, into those calculations. And then, uh, you know, certainly we, we all know that COVID-19 has triggered a, a considerable socioeconomic change, you know, particularly with, you know, in respect to, to how and where we work. Um, let, let's be honest, remote work is likely here to stay, uh, which is going to fundamentally alter not only how we interact with our peers, but, but also the type of risk that we face at uh, at the workplace and, and most importantly, how we manage them. Um, there was a recent study by Chubb Insurance that found that 41% uh, of remote employees indicated that they were now experiencing more pain and discomfort working from home than they did previously when they were at the office. And the same survey found that uh, those, those same employees were working longer hours at home uh, and that was raising some concerns around their, their stress levels and burnout, with even 30% saying that mental health was, was presenting a barrier to their productivity. So, you know, I think as, as work shifts virtually, organizations are going to need to consider how to not only keep their employees connected, but, but how to provide them with tools that are going to help them self-identify and manage risks uh, within this remote working environment.
So, so that's all on, on a remote working environment uh, perspective. I, I think we also have to acknowledge that despite the shift to remote working, there's still far more jobs that, will, that, that exist and, and can only be performed at the workplace. And as I mentioned previously, I think the pandemic has, has really forced organizations to think about how they need to redesign their workplaces in a way that optimizes adaptability. So in a way that allows those operations to scale up and down depending on the available workforce without it resulting necessarily in long-term stoppages if employees are away sick. And, and that increased adaptability will potentially result in, in changes like greater uh, process automation, right? Uh, more remote monitoring devices or, or even how uh, we'll need to organize work in a way that doesn't necessarily require human-to-human -human contact. Anything that we can do um, that provides adaptability in a sense that, that people don't have to get um, uh, together um, in a normal way of operating, certainly provides us with a degree of, of flexibility in the event uh, that we have another pandemic or emergency where, where we have to keep people apart. So, you know, a good question to ask ourselves is, is these are all interesting trends, but what impact are these trends having on, on health and safety planning and budgets? And last month, um, the analyst firm Verdantix, which is uh, the principal analyst that, that surveys the, um, the health and safety software and technology market, they surveyed roughly 300 um, health and safety leaders across many global corporations, uh, really on their thoughts on, on their EHS priorities and budgets for 2021. And in the report, they indicated that about 30% of firms um, plan to increase their health and safety budgets in 2021, um, which is incidentally 90% higher than, than the previous year, um, with three out of four prioritizing spend on safety and risk management, which itself is a good sign. Um, but furthermore, 31% of those businesses indicated that um, they plan to increase their spending on EHS software uh, with a strong focus around how technology is going to help support their, their health and safety management. So, you know, it does appear that more organizations are looking toward technology as a way to support uh, managing these risks moving forward uh, in 2021. And, and that, that, that's kind of a, a good lead in into our, our last portion of the, of, of the talk today. So as I had mentioned, you know, with, with employers signaling growing interest in budgets for, for health and safety technology, I wanted to spend the, the balance of our, our time today really to review just a, a few key ways in which organizations might be able to leverage EHS software uh, to address some of those key challenges and, and trends that, that we anticipate arriving in the new year. So to start, you know, I wanted to start with uh, with a, a, a view on, on this idea of predictive insight. And, and for me, of, of all the lessons that we learned through COVID-19, I would argue that the value of insight is probably the most relevant. And, and really, what do I mean by this? Well, at the outset of the pandemic, many organizations struggled to detect where infection threats were emerging in the workplaces early enough to enable them to take prompt action before that exposure resulted in a wider outbreak. And we saw this you know, represented in the media in a number of cases. And what's interesting is, is this struggle wasn't because organizations necessarily lacked data. In many ways, it was because they lacked the capacity to transform that data into insights fast enough to enable them to identify where to focus. And this is important because when, you know, when something negative happens, there's a natural tendency, I think, within organizations to assume that we lacked enough good data 
uh, to make an informed decision to prevent whatever was happening from happening. Um, so our default is to alter our processes to collect more data. And we see, however, that it's often not the lack of data that's the problem. Um, I, I guess just a general comment, you know, data growth has been expanding exponentially over the last 20 years, um, with some estimates, you know, saying that that by the end of this year, we will have collected um, about 40,000 exabytes of data. Now, that, that's a pretty massive number. And if you don't know what an exabyte is, let, let me put it another way. Right now, we are collecting enough data to fill a three and a half inch floppy disk for those that, that are old enough to, to remember what they are, a three and a half inch floppy disk for every single person on the planet, every single second. That's how much data we're collecting. So really the problem isn't data, the, you know, in, in terms of how, of how much we're getting. The real problem is that organizations lack the scalable capacity to translate that data into useful insights, principally because of the way that they collect and analyze data is still done manually. And that's why we're seeing organizations, you know, expressing a lot more interest recently around advanced data analytics, you know, through enterprise software, which really enables them to, to use their data to create predictive models on what most likely will happen. And then in turn, enabling those businesses leaders to, uh, you know, make more timely decisions on, on priorities or risk or resource allocation, I should say, to manage risk and, and prevent loss. You know, advanced analytics is really offering that that opportunity to shift from what what I would call a diagnose and treat approach uh, to more of a predict and prevent approach to, to risk management. So I'd argue that companies really should be asking themselves, are we getting full value out of the data that we're collecting or or, or even to put it another way, is the value of the insights that we're currently gaining um, offsetting the cost of, of collecting and manipulating that data in the first place. And, and if, that, if that balance is skewed, it's probably a sign that, that your organization might be able to benefit from some of the advanced analytics that, that are available with, with enterprise software. I, the, the second, the, the second uh, key idea or, or key opportunity uh, that we see through technology is this idea of, of risk self-management. So earlier, you know, we had mentioned that the, with the shift toward remote work, it's creating a new risk profile for employees. So, for example, you know, employees with poorly designed home workstations uh, will likely be exposed to higher ergonomic risks. Just simply, they they haven't set up their environment at home appropriately, and that's going to contribute to more pain and discomfort. And since employers don't have direct control or oversight over these remote working environments, it's going to require organizations to look a little, you know, look for for more innovative ways to to help their employees self-assess and self-manage those risks in those home environments. So what I've provided here uh, is just a few examples um, of, of what organizations are, are thinking about right now. So on the left-hand side of the screen, I've provided a screenshot of, of one of Cordy's products called OES uh, as an example of a tool that, that workers could use to self-assess and manage risks in, in a remote environment. So with this solution, um, just as an example, this offers self-guided training to, to educate users on how to assess ergonomic risks in, in their home environment, and then provides simple recommendations that, that the worker can, can action themselves to, to address those risks and, and prevent the onset of, of discomfort. So I'd argue that organizations need to be considering right now how change, you know, the changes that they're making to their, their working environments, both remotely and otherwise, Consider how that might be impacting their uh, their workforce, and then consider how do you empower your your employees with the tools and the training and the knowledge that they need to be able to take more 
ownership over that risk assessment and management process because we we understand that there's going to be constraints around um, either physical constraints um, between uh, an office environment and a home environment or within within the the regular work environment itself. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, businesses need to or, or should be exploring how to plan to ensure that their employees receive adequate and timely training and education, um, whether again, they're either working from home or, or in a regular uh, workplace. You know, the, the need to maintain physical distance means that many of, of what we would call traditional in-person forms of training um, that, that are, are tend to be our go-to within the, the health and safety field are, aren't an option anymore and certainly not for, for a number of months going forward. You know, gone are the days of, of simply pulling people into a meeting room. You know, it's just not possible now. So as a result, organizations are looking for ways to flexibly, flexibly develop and deliver learning content despite those constraints. And, and it's why we anticipate the explosion that we see in, in digital learning options, you know, whether that be through learning management systems or micro learning apps or, or things of that sort, will only continue to grow in 2021 and moving forward. And, and in, in fact, it's highly likely that the adoption of these different learning modes will continue to grow after the pandemic, specifically because younger workers have shown a clear preference to this kind of, of self-directed DIY style of learning. So again, organizations, my, my recommendation here would be, you know, organizations should be exploring how to sustain their learning and, and training program through digitization, you know, both in terms of how they plan and assign training, but also, you know, how are they offering digital tools to create flexibility in terms of how they create and consume content that, that enables anyone to, to be able to access and, and, and go through training uh, wherever and whenever they are. You know, yeah, as a third point, when we talk about optimizing engagement, I think when we look back on, on COVID-19, I think one of the, the critical lessons that we will have learned is the power of engagement. Um, you know, for all the stories that we've heard in the media about organizations that have failed to protect their employees, um, I, I'd argue that there's probably more examples of businesses that have successfully managed risk by actively engaging their workforce um, and involving them in, in critical safety decisions. And I think, you know, beyond COVID-19, I, I think we need to acknowledge that workplaces were changing even before the pandemic. You know, generally we're seeing less supervisory oversight, we're seeing more self-directed work, uh, we're seeing more teams working across larger operating put footprints that, that are creating real challenges for teams to communicate. And, and as a result, I, I think we'll likely see more organizations shifting toward adopting mobile technologies as a way uh, to, to better connect their, their teams and, and enable that real-time real data sharing. So, you know, from frontline employee perspective, that would be, you know, how do we provide frontline employees with the data they need to plan and execute work safely or to, to uh, collect and respond to their concerns in real time without distance or, or, uh, or restrictions, um, COVID-19 restrictions per presenting a barrier. Supervisors need to be able to review risk assessments, authorize permits, assign work, and again, they need the flexibility to do that when uh, necessarily they don't have all their employees in one spot. And certainly senior leaders, you know, uh, we're going to be challenged over the next few months and, and years around um, the ways in which we bring people together to, to share information and, and moving toward mobile platforms provides just a little bit more adaptability and flexibility on, on what we can do um, to provide a little bit more um, opportunity there. 
you know, quickly, um, you know, we had indicated a few minutes ago that we anticipate a significant shift um, in regulatory enforcement in the new year uh, with the incoming administration. And I think that's going to shift a lot of attention toward um, how technology can support compliance management. Um, generally, you know, when when we talk to clients at Cordy around compliance and, and how software can help them, it, they tend to present us with um, the same five kind of, of issues that, that we think can be resolved uh, pretty clearly with, with technology. So the first is, you know, they don't know what applies. So, so quite simply, um, it's difficult to know what, you know, what rules to follow if you're unsure, unsure what those rules are. So really we see opportunities for, um, for software to, to certainly alleviate some of the burden that's associated with finding out and keeping up to speed uh, on uh some of the, the, the requirements that, that your organization is, is mandated to follow. And certainly when we integrate software with some of uh, third-party regulatory content providers, you know, they help um, research, uh, research some of those standards and, and make sure that uh, you're up to speed. So obviously that, that task doesn't fall within people within your organization. You know, a lot of organizations, they struggle to operationalize complex requirements. So, you know, it, it's, organizations have to both understand what uh, what they need to do, but also, you know, figure out how do I actually get this done? How do I operationalize these, these very complex requirements in ways that keep me in compliance to the law? And, you know, software is an opportunity that, that gives you a lot of features to deconstruct these requirements into um, very tangible compliance actions, and then assign those actions out to individuals that, that, you know, where you can monitor the progress and ensure that, you know, those actions aren't just simply lost in the whirlwind. Um, as we'd mentioned before, you know, people need data. They, they need to be able uh, to access the data that they need when they need it um, to be able to manage risk in real time and, and really to create safety dynamically. And, you know, where a lot of organizations fall short is uh, they have a great program on paper and it, it remains in a binder somewhere and never really gets out onto the plant floor. So, you know, moving toward a, a, a digital solution, you know, especially with mobile applications that enable workers to be able to access and, and kind of dive in, pull out the, the, the information that they need out of their program and use it in the field dynamically is, is certainly going to be uh, advantageous to a lot of organizations. Um, a lot of organizations struggle with silos, right? So, you know, in, in a lot of cases where employers run into compliance issues, that's because I often say the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. So, you know, one department issues initiates a change that introduces a new risk or a new requirement that's unknown until the inspector shows up at the door and and we're, we're trying to explain um, the gap. And, and certainly with a lot of software solutions where we have the ability to integrate alerts and notifications into to, to workflows, that ensures that those surprise developments and, and those changes don't come as a surprise, that they're well well known in advance and then we can work around that and make sure that that safety considerations are, are, are realized um, um, before obviously a regulatory official could come up, uh, come to our organization. And then finally, you know, the ability to measure results. I think quite clearly without access to, to uh, reliable data, it's really difficult to know you know, whether the things that you're doing are having the desired effect. So again, we're seeing a lot of interest in, and we see a lot of opportunity for organizations in, in leveraging a lot of the, the, the massive resources that have been put in recently with business intelligence and analytics and, and really enable you to get a clear perspective on, you know, how are we doing? Are we focused on the right things or, or where, do, where does our business need to shift? 
And then finally, you know, we had talked a little bit earlier today about um, this this connection between you know this the growing importance of, of sustainability and you know how we see safety is is becoming a more integral lever within uh, sustainability initiatives. So that's not going to change. And for a lot of organizations. Uh, sustainability becomes particularly challenging because the reporting process is pretty arduous. Um, it's a number of people uh, across the business collecting a number, uh, you know, collecting, collating, aggregating a number of different metrics, um, and then being able to produce, you know, the, the the applicable reports and things like that. And and again, with with technology, we see a lot of opportunity to really streamline that data collection, reduce the time and effort to generate those reports, but at the same time, it's also to provide those. Um, those very, you know, clear, intuitive, visual um, business intelligence tools to, to be able to kind of track your performance in real time and not wait a month or, or a quarter later to, to figure out you're not uh, where you need to be going is that you can look at this data and you can manage you know, issues moment to moment and, and really ensure that um, you're, you're allocating resources and, and, and people effectively. So that brings us to the end of the presentation. So before I hand the reins over uh, to Barry again and, and open it up for Q&A, I just wanted to, to briefly recap what we talked about today. So, you know, uh, we started our, our, our talk by taking a look back at 2020 and, you know, we, we acknowledged that there were a number of significant events that occurred. And while certainly I would say that everything pales in comparison to COVID-19, um, you know, we would need, you know, we should be mindful of some of the developments that, that have occurred in, in with respect to deregulation and, and marijuana legalization and things of that nature. Since, you know, many of our organizations are still going to likely face the effects of those decisions into the new year and, and perhaps even further. You know, looking ahead, you know, we, we talked a little bit about what we might expect from, from the new administration. And uh, if I had to sum that up, I would probably say, be prepared for a much different, much more aggressive enforcement approach um, than than potentially what you were accustomed to over the uh, over the the last four years. And I think, um, again, as as we kind of ended off the, the the last portion, there's some pretty interesting and significant trends that we're seeing in sustainability and and changing workforce that I, I think will demand some pretty innovative solutions. And then finally, you know, on a technology perspective. Um, I just provided you with with a, a very little, you know, a very small snapshot of what's uh, what's currently floating around in in the, the the heads of a lot of health and safety thought leaders um, right now. But certainly, we we see a number of ways that technology can assist, you know, whether that be through analytics, mobility, compliance, or sustainability. And um, I'd certainly encourage anyone anyone on the call that if you know any of these things are, are of interest to you or, or certainly would have an impact on your business, do a little bit more research and, uh, and certainly consider how, how um, digitizing and, and, and shifting and, and digitally transforming your, your management system might be uh, the, the next step forward. So with that, I will uh, switch back over to Barry and open it up for any questions that anybody might have. Great. Well, thank you very much, Sean. We appreciate you sharing your expertise with us today. And just a reminder for our audience members that if you'd like to ask a question, uh, go ahead and click on that Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type in your question, and press the send button. Before we start the Q&A, I wanted to let everyone know about an evaluation survey that we'll be asking you to complete. Uh, the survey will open in a different screen after this webinar, and your input is really important to us uh, because we do use that input to help us improve our future webcasts. So, Sean, let's go ahead and get to a few questions here. We had a few that have come in. Um, Kathy in our audience mentions that you talked about 
employees experiencing a little more pain who are working from home. And she says, you know, it's probably not just the hours, but also the stress and, and ergonomics not being the same at home. And Kathy wonders, Sean, do you have any insight into how much companies may be willing to invest in helping employees who are working at home with these type of issues? Yeah, great question. Thanks, Kathy. Um, yeah, I think, you know, there's going to be, I would hazard a guess, and we talk about this quite a bit, um, you know, I certainly do with my colleagues, that the the remote working, the home working environment is going to be almost a, uh, an industry on itself, I think, in, in 2021 moving forward, because um, there was actually... Uh, over lunch this afternoon, um, I, I saw a report recently from another uh, health and safety publication that said that 50% of employees were looking or would be interested to work from home permanently uh, after the pandemic. So I think, um, you know, we're going to have to look, and, and this is why I always look back and say, we can't look at this as a singular risk issue. I think you have to kind of look at it from the perspective of how does a shift toward a remote environment change the, the nature of the, the hazards that, that workers are facing? And I, I think certainly ergonomics is one of them. Um, and, you know, certainly uh, mental health is another one, you know, whether that be, um, work hours and, and, you know, that connection or, or how to, how do you, how does the organization set up um, clear clear policies and clear barriers that that would separate you know time at work versus time at home because those lines uh, get pretty blurred uh, if you don't pay attention to them and uh, and then again some of the other resources so again this is where you know I would I would look back and say you know this is where I, I think technology offers a lot of opportunities because imagine you're going to have to be able to uh, really focus on how do I train this individual to be able to recognize these issues themselves and to be able to um, uh, come up with very innovative and cost-effective solutions to address some of those issues um, without uh, the employer having to dispatch resources to everybody's home environment where they don't necessarily uh, have control, right? It's, it's this kind of weird uh, gray area about what, what really is, is the controllable work workplace for the employer. So again, I always come back to um, how do we optimize training um, to really build up the, the competencies that people need when they work from home to be able to identify and, and manage risk? And then are there, are there different solutions that we can provide to them that, that make it easier? So as, as an example, just to tie this off, um, we have a, a product in Cordy um, that a lot of our, our internal staff use as well, and it's a, a break timer. Where it's it's called RSI Guard, but it has a number of different features, and one of them being a break timer. And you know, I often find that I can get lost uh, at my laptop for hours, and then not realize I haven't changed posture, and then that creates a pain. Uh, so certainly, having a device that would pop up on your, on your screen and, and tell you to take a break or get up and, and move. Those are the kind of solutions that I foresee are, are going to be much more, uh, organizations are going to look a little bit more closely at going forward because they, they understand the constraint that they're not there and they just can't physically move things around. They're going to have to really rely on, on the better judgment of, of their employees working from home. Great. Thank you, Sean. And Carrie from our audience wants to know if if you could clarify what you mean by mandatory infection reporting and, and does HIPAA impact that or play into that at all? Yeah, uh, thanks, Carrie. Great question. So mandatory infection reporting, what I mean by that is um, obviously there, there's been a lot of back and forth uh, with federal OSHA 
um, throughout the year on what type of infections, you know, does an infection in and of itself need to be reported to OSHA or not? Um, and just as an example, I think initially um, there was, and, and excuse me, it's, they've gone through so many iterations, um, there was certainly, uh, if you were infected and that infection was, uh, you know, all reasonable, you know, a, a, a duly diligent employer were to do an investigation and find that there was a, a reasonable suspicion that this would have occurred at work, that that would be OSHA re uh, reportable, whereas um, others that, that can't be attributed to work would not be unless somebody would then, uh, you know, potentially uh, succumb to that, that you know, and, and die because of, of that infection. So there's a lot of ambiguity and, and there's a lot of, of confusion. And then when you look at some of the, the state, you know, the states that have issued uh, COVID-19 regulations and, and um, temporary standards like Virginia, they have some very uh, stringent requirements about reporting, you know, what has to be reported by whom and when. Does it mean that it's HIPAA compliant? I, I would imagine that there would be some guardrails around uh, the the communication of of health information but certainly I think what what these agencies are looking for is are we seeing trends are we seeing trends of an employer not taking reasonable steps to, to uh, quell infection and then would would a, a, an agency whether at the federal or state level um, dispatch an inspector to go look and say are, are they really uh, doing everything that they need to do, or or are these infection rates, you know, are they indicative of of something wrong with with just the way that they've structured their pro program? So, that's what I mean by by mandatory infection reporting. Um, it, it, we'll still wait to see. I think generally um, there is going to be you know a little bit of of flexing going on between all these different state level uh, ETSs that have been issued and whatever will come out federally. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. Um, how those reporting requirements, at least at a federal level, are going to hash themselves out. Great. Thank you, Sean. And uh, we have Eduardo checking in today all the way from Argentina. And Eduardo's asking about, uh, he's curious if you have some best practices for uh, work at home folks. Uh, and he says specifically in relation to the preparation of the worker, the environment and the relationship with the rest of the folks in the organization. What are your best thoughts on that? Yeah, great question. Thanks. Uh, thanks for coming, Eduardo. So I I think like anything, um, it's very it's very easy to say, you know, out of sight, out of mind that if, you know, you don't see the worker there, it, it, it's, um, you know, with everything else going on, it, it's very, uh, it, it's very reasonable to, to kind of lose sight of it. But I think the moment that you've given permission for people to work at home, I, I think from a health and safety perspective, what I would do is uh, perhaps provide some templates or, or some guidance that, um, a worker could go through to validate that they've set up their workstation or at least that they've identified and they've been thinking about how to control some of the risk factors that are associated with that. So some of that might be a simple checklist where, you know, um, uh, that that might have some ergonomic design guidelines that are associated with it. So very much look at the picture, look at your workstation, it, are they comparable or not? And then um, through a process of elimination is, is really kind of drilled down to uh, some of those those key issues that are remaining. And if if that individual still has, has some struggle, that there's some sort of mechanism that, that they can elevate that back to their employer and, and seek assistance. Um, from a, a mental health perspective and, and a, a work-life balance perspective, I think really, uh, you know, 
any individuals that are are permitting um, their their subordinates to work from home, I would say you know really try to to think about how do we create an environment where we're checking in on each other. So it might require much more frequent check-ins than than you might you might think, but we often lose sight of those those incidental um, touch points that we have in in a regular environment where you know kind of walking to to the the coffee maker or what have you, you pass by people, you check in on them. Those are kind of eliminated. Those social interactions are kind of eliminated in the virtual environment. So we have to recreate those virtually. So I think, you know, start by providing some, some tools that, that would enable individuals to, to really look at how do we, how do we identify potential risks of, of, you know, that are associated with this transition and then really um, work to uh, provide mechanisms that that individuals can bring things forward, and and seek um, seek support on on some of those home challenges that they may f- may be facing. Great, thanks, Sean. We have time for one more quick question today, and uh, one of our audience members is curious: How should we, and uh, a health and safety practitioner, go about building a business case to convince management uh, to invest in software? You talked a lot about budgets earlier. Um, can you share some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I'll say very quickly, um, I usually say to three things. So I, I would start off with um, do your research on those, those critical issues that are, are compromising, you know, the efficiency and, and the effectiveness of, of your program, right? So really dive down, um, get involved, talk to your knowledge, you know, your, your subject matter experts, your knowledge leaders, your, your super users, and really try to understand what's holding them back um, and, and what's holding back progress in, in terms of health and safety. Focus your attention there. Um, don't try to fix anything that's not broken. And the reason I say that is, is we tend to, to uh, see a very, uh, a, like a utopia that, that could be restored through, through technology. And invariably what happens is we create a scope that's far too big and, and we can't secure budget for that. So really, you know, drill down on, on the most important issues that you need to solve. Second thing is, is really look at your stakeholders. So um, that starts with having an executive sponsor. So somebody high in, in the senior leadership that, that can then, certainly go to bat for you uh, that will will be that sponsor will be that advocate that can push decisions through um, the executive group um, look at you know engaging your your end users the people that are going to be most affected by the solution engage your IT uh, department engage consultants potentially um, that will all um, enable you to, to kind of get a better perspective on on how uh, to organize the project in a way that it's going to be successful, and I would say finally, um, rubber hits the road. You have to you have to show a, a cost benefit, right? You have to show that you know for the dollars that we're investing, we're going to get something out of this. So you know from that perspective, I would look at you know incident rates that could be avoided, um, legal um, legal expenses, you know whether that be through citations or, or fighting those citations in court. I would look at compensation costs. I would look at even the opportunity to um, in-house, like to bring back in a lot of services that you might have outsourced uh, because you don't have the uh, you don't have the the resources to do so. Um, with the digital transformation, maybe it makes those uh, those those processes um, available now to be done internally. So look at all those numbers, put them together, try to come up with uh, with a very clear, objective, quantifiable metric on on what the uh, the project will save for, for the organization and, and the value it's going to bring. And I think if you hit on those three items, um, you're setting yourself up for success for sure. Great. Well, thank you, Sean. I'm sorry, folks, we have run out of time. Uh, but 
for any questions that we didn't get to, those will be all be forwarded along to Sean. Again, we hope you take a little bit of time to share your feedback through our survey. And I'd like to thank our outstanding presenter, Sean Baldry, our sponsor, Cordy, and of course, all of you who joined us today. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. Take care, everyone, and have a safe day.